Nachyomi for the Orthodox Union. Sefer Yoshua, Parakid Aleph, the book of Joshua, chapter 11. Rabbi Bini Marilis. After Yeshua's destruction of the kingdoms in the south, cutting the swath of land directly across the land of Israel, almost to the sea, and the cities to the south, we hear in Parakid Aleph the story of the war with the north. It seems that Yehoshua was not in an immediate mode to go to battle with the north, but that they come to him. In a similar manner that the armies of the south get together to start war with Yehoshua, the armies of the north do the same. And they're led by Melech Chatzor, the king of Chatzor. Chatzor is a city well into the north of Israel. It's uh, to the north of the Kinneret. And a very famous city, we'll see later in the Perak that it's the stronghold in the north. And the king, it appears, of Chatzur is always called Yavin, similar to what you would say is a paro in Egypt and a, uh, a Caesar um, back in the day, that that was the name of the kings in those locations. So it was that the king of Chatzur heard, what did he hear? It seems that he heard about all the victories and all the destruction, all the death to the leadership in the kingdoms and the destruction of the cities and the towns and the people. He heard about all this and he decides to act. He sends to these different kings and also He sends to all the kingdoms essentially across the northern realm of uh, of Israel of the world of Israel, Madon, which is a little bit to the to the west of uh, the Kinneret and Shimron, which is also a little bit further west to the Shimron, and he is essentially uh, creating a king, a mass population of kingdoms that cross uh, east to west in the north. All the famous uh, nations, the seven nations, are essentially spread across the north in a similar manner that they were spread across the south. Um, what we learn here is that these seven nations, the nations that the Jews were commanded to destroy, were not located in one particular region, but they're sort of spread around into different areas. Similarly, we see the case in, in the Torah and in Navi with Amalek, that Amalek appears in many, many locations and not in one distinct locale. They're not uh, one type of thing like uh, Moab or Ammon, Adam, which appear in a very uh, specific location and specific borders. These different nations have strongholds in different uh, areas and different locations throughout the land. Thus, when we, even though we've seen uh, kingdoms of the Amori destroyed before, we're now able to see them again listed here because they're not the same ones. They're ones in a different location. They go out with all of their people, with all their camp, a great multitude of people, like the sands of the sea, like the sands of the beaches of the sea. And here, with a new addition of horses and chariots. Israel. 
and they gathered together as a big vad, right? A big, a uh, big group, a colossal amount of people, all the kingdoms and the kings together, and they uh, they gathered together at a place called Memarom. Perhaps it's uh, the the famous place Memarom today. Perhaps not. It could be a place that's maybe further north, but in the same vicinity, the north in the land of Israel. And they gathered together. It must have been a strategic location of some sort, a location where they could gather together in such a multitude. And they gathered together to go to battle. Now, as we set this battle up, keep in mind that Yehoshua, according to our story, is still settled at Gilgal. Gilgal is well to the south of this location. And the notion that he would be aware of this gathering of kingdoms, it comes via messenger or it comes via Ruach HaKodesh, some manner, he becomes aware of this gathering. At the same time that we're learning about another story of war and destruction at the hands of Yoshua and um, his army, we have to ask ourselves the question is why this, why, why, what are we learning here that's additional, other than the fact that it, in fact that this happened. Keep it in mind. Verse 6, Vayomer Adonai el Yehoshua, Fear not. God says to Yeshua, Fear not. You have nothing to fear from them. You have nothing to be worried about. Everything will go exactly according to the plan and the manner that we've had so far to this day. At this point tomorrow, I'm going to give all of them to you as Chalalim will be destroyed. As to Sayem to Akir, as Makivo Sayem Tisrof Ba'esh. Their horses you should lame, and you should burn their chariots. That's a significant additional detail that's in this war that was not in other wars. We'll discuss that in a moment when, in fact, Yoshua goes through with the commandment. By Yavo Yehoshua, in verse 7, Yoshua comes, And they fall upon them. Yoshua and his army once again, once again, in another amazing moment of military strategy, fall upon them, the way the text reads, literally fall upon them in a surprise. Suddenly, out of nowhere, the Jewish army is on top of these warring armies. How they get there and the specifics of it, it's not clear. It's clear that they weren't expecting them at this moment. But in fact, they fall upon them and they begin the campaign at destruction of the armies of the north. Verse 8, They leave nothing left over. Just physically, in terms of where the locations are. Ad Sidon Rabbah, Sidon is an area well to the north of where we are at this point. Sidon, in the modern world, uh, is in Lebanon, um, and it's on the coast in, uh, in central Lebanon. So they chase them all the way across to the north and to the west, and across directly to the west to the sea, right, into all the different directions, in the east and to the west and to the north. They leave nothing behind. Yoshua does them exactly what it is that God commanded them, Right? He lamed the horses and he burned the chariots. Why? Why is that the command and why is it so at the forefront here um, with respect to this war as opposed to previous wars? Now, perhaps in a practical sense, 
that maybe in the other wars that the horses and chariots were not used, and that's unique to the battle in the north, that you have this additional factor at play, other than walled cities, perhaps, um, and well-armed soldiers, you have uh, uh, horses and, and chariots. It's possible. It's a new element of battle. At the same time, very more, uh, more likely is the, uh, the notion that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants to teach another lesson to the Jewish people, to teach Yoshua and his, uh, his warring nation another very, another very key uh, element to this. Again, re- uh, maybe a reinforcement of the notion that it's all up Yad Hashem, that it requires the hand of God, and it does not require, um, does not require horses and chariots of this nature, to be victorious in battle. Eilu barecha ve'eilu lasusim, right? Tehillim tells us they come with chariots and they come with uh, with horses. And we come by reminding and remembering the name of God. There's no prohibition of using horses or chariots in war. It's another manner of military strategy and uh, armament that could be used. And certainly in the course of history, the Jews... Um, used these types of uh, warring uh, materials. At the same time, in this time of the history, where the Jewish people are just beginning to settle the land, and they perhaps, perhaps, have a notion of kochiv otzim yadi, that they're so successful and so victorious in all these wars, that they perhaps can become overconfident and think that it's them. So here, God insists on a prohibition, as it were, with respect to the horses and the chariots. And even though, generally speaking, in the Torah, that prohibition only is to kings, right? Altar besusim, that the king is not, uh, not permitted to have a multitude of horses. Here, HaKadosh Baruch Hu extends that to Yeshua and to the entirety of the population. They should not partake of these. They should burn them. Burn the chariots and lame the animals. Verse 10. So once Yoshua has been victorious, he now turns his attention and his focus to the cities of the north and what to do with them specifically as it relates to the capture and the manner of then ultimately the Jewish people settling in those lands. So in verse 10, you have as follows. So Yoshua then turns back, right? He returns down from all the locations where they're, they're fighting these people to the north, to the east, and to the west. And he turns towards the city. And he specifically pays attention to Chatzor. So we mentioned Chatzor is a very significant city. Chatzor is a stronghold in the north. And by virtue of that, as we're about to see in the next, at the end of this verse, that's where Yoshua focuses his attention. Right? So, Because Chatzor was the town. That was the the center point, that's the focal point, that's where people took their cues from, is the city of Chatzor, and then therefore the king, Yavin Melech Chatzor, as we saw as the leader of the pack, and at the same time, so then his kingdom would affect uh, how people would be uh, with respect to war in the other towns. Chatzor itself, he burns. Right, we'll see that he doesn't burn any of the other cities, but Chatzor itself burns. One can see possibly like this. If Chatzor is such a stronghold, perhaps physically it's strategically located on a mountaintop or on a, uh, on a, uh, a point of crossing where roads meet and people cross, 
And if it's in a high point in the land, seeing it burn would be significant. Chatzor is on fire, Chatzor is burning. All the other towns suddenly lose hope, they lose confidence, and will be more easily destroyed by virtue of them seeing Chatzor um, at the at the point of destruction. In Yud Beis, and all of the kingdoms, and all the kings, and all of their towns, so Yeshua hit them, beat them, and killed them. Again, reinforcing the point as we stated before, that the, as the Das often reminds us that this comes al pi the command of Moshe, the servant of God, and ultimately then the word of God. Rak kol ha'arim ha'omdos al tilam lo serafam Yisrael uzulasias chatzol levadas raf Yeshua. An interesting point. Yeshua only burns Chatzor. The other cities, they did not destroy. You know, as we destroyed Yericho, they destroyed Ai. But many of the cities, that in fact, did not destroy. Obviously, for the purpose that the Jewish people would ultimately need a place to settle. They would need homes to live in. Why destroy the city if not necessary? In many cases where the kingdoms and the kings and their armies came out of the cities to fight the battles at the, in the fields, so then the battles were won in the fields, there was no need to burn down the cities. There's no need to destroy the cities. Taking all the spoils of war is one thing, but there's no need for the destruction of the cities. In the case with Yericho, with Ai, different situation. The case of Chatzor, again, a specific reason. But the other cities, no reason necessary to destroy them. Chol shalal he'arim in Yudalid, verse 14, he'arim ha'elu ve'habahima ba'zuzu lahem in Yisrael, they leave nobody alive. All the people are killed and the spoils are taken. Just like God commanded Moshe to do, so Yehoshua was commanded by Moshe. He did not leave anything over. From all that was commanded to him by Moshe, he does, he fulfills, he comes through, and all that Moshe was commanded was at the hand, at the mouth, at the feet of God. Heard from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and Yeshua does exactly that. One can ask the question as to why that is repeated over and over and over again. It's significant to realize, it's the cases in the Torah as well, as we mentioned previously, just like God commanded Moshe, Right, they always do exactly as Moshe has commanded, and exactly as Hakadosh Baruch Hu commanded Moshe to tell the people to do, or to tell the Kohanim to do, or to tell Aaron to do. In this case, to tell Yehoshua to do. That all this is mitzivu Hashem. All this is the commandments of God, and they're simply following what Hakadosh Baruch Hu wants. This is what God wants. No ifs, ands, or buts. No questions asked. No more. No less. Right. Baltosi, Baltigra, nothing additional, nothing less. Exactly what God wants, that's what they're doing, that's exactly how they're fulfilling it. And that's significant, that as much as we're now passing into Navi, and we're, we're sort of moving across time out of the, the historical period of the Torah, the physical historical period of the Torah, Torah is obviously uh, everlasting, but in terms of the history, we're moving further away from the time of Moshe's uh, life, Nonetheless, they're holding fast and they're holding true to what it was that Moshe was commanded, what it was that Moshe turned over to Yehoshua, and what it is that Yehoshua is passing to the, to the Zikanim and to the population as they move about their business and they go into the land. They're staying to the message, they're staying and holding fast to what it is that they're required to do, and they're not doing any more or any less. And here... As we come towards the end of the Perak, the last six or seven psukim, 
essentially sum up in a certain mode all that's taken place to this time. And then we'll see in the next paragraph when we list the listing of all the different kingdoms that are destroyed. But here you get a, a summary set of psukim, summary set of verses with respect to what Yehoshua has accomplished till this point. Verse 16. Yoshua takes all of the places um, with respect to this location in these areas, the mountains and then the Negev. The Negev, as we know in the modern world, is a desert area. It's called Eretz Goshen. Eretz Goshen, it appears that there was some form of a place called an Eretz Goshen in the land of Israel. And that's where they go, in a place called Ha Yisrael, which we may never have heard before, according to many of the of the commentaries, that Yisrael Avinu, Yaakov Avinu, had settled there, and it was named um, after him, and therefore it's called Ha Yisrael. Yitzayimin ha'ar ha'chalak ho'les se'ir, v'adbal gad bevik as halvanon tachas ha'chemon, v'eskom ha'chayim la'kad v'yakam y'misei. All the different locations in the mountainous areas that head towards Seir, that head towards the areas of Seir, and then the areas in the north with respect to the valleys of, and the hills and the valleys of uh, Lebanon, near the areas of the Hermon, which is the Hermon is the northern areas uh, of, of the land of Israel, north to the east, right up in the, val- in the areas near Lebanon, near Syria. And he destroys all of them. Many, many days Yoshua is at war with all of these nations. We talked about the idea that it's seven years, according to Chazal, seven years of fighting, seven years to settle the land. And he fights for many, many years. Nobody made peace with the Jews other than the people of Giv'on. No one else made peace. This is the way it worked out. We've talked before the notion that they had the opportunity, essentially, of three things. One, to make peace. Two, to leave. Or three, to go to war. And most of the nations chose to go to battle, to go to war, even though they were going to lose and going to be destroyed. Maybe the little glimmer of hope that I provided for them, or the ability for them to um, uh, to convince themselves of a chance of victory. Uh, nonetheless, none of them made peace, none of them made an accord of any variety other than the people of Givon, to which the Jewish people lived up to for many, many generations. In verse 20, Chaf, because it was from God, to, to, to harden their hearts, so that HaKadosh Baruch would go to war with them, so they can be destroyed. Right? That uh, nothing should, um, there should be no rachamim for them, there should be no sense of, uh, of, of, of feelings of pity for them. Making peace with them only causes, uh, will cause trouble. And um, we'll see ultimately in the course of the history, by virtue of not conquering all of the land, it does, uh, it does leave room for problems going into the save of the book of Shoftim. But here, the notion that they don't make peace, it appears is partly at the hand of God, that uh, he hardens their hearts to go to war, to fight, so that they can be destroyed. An additional very interesting detail that happens in literally... Um, I think it's a very interesting point, which we'll understand on a shot level and then maybe on a deeper level. In verse 21, after all the wars in the north and the wars in the south, 
ויבוא יהושע בעשהי ויחרש את הענקים מן ההר, מן חברון, מן דביר, מן ענב, מכל הר יהודה, מכל הר ישראל, עם עריהם, החרום יהושע. יהושע destroys the people called the ענקים. ענקים, we can understand them to be as we've always understood them to be. The ענקים are, we've always understood them to be, giants. Gevei HaKom, the Mitzvah explains, they're very tall people, very big people. You might ask, what's this doing here? What specifically is unique about this story more than anything else? That in verse 22, it tells us like we've seen before, None of the uh, giants are left over in the land of Israel except in Azza and Gat and Ashdod uh, where they're left. Gat and Azza and Ashdod is down the coast, as we know, down the coast of Israel and what's the, the modern-day Gaza Strip. Um, and to just the north of it, um, we have uh, the city of Ashdod and the city of Gat, the cities of Aza. What's the significance of these two verses? One, that he destroys the Anakim in one area and doesn't destroy them in another area. So who are the ones in the first area, in the area of Hebron? So it would seem that Yoshua has come full circle from his first exposure to these gentlemen, used that term loosely, these gentlemen back in the story of the Miraglim, Right, that the Miraglim talked about the Anakim, that there's no way they can destroy, they can no way they can win the wars when they come into the land, because the Miraglim said, the spies had said, that there's uh, B'nai Anakim, there are these uh, giants in the land in the areas of Hebron. And yet Yeshua comes full circle, and now all these years later, he destroys uh, the Anakim in the city of Hebron. So sort of, in a certain sense, provides a bookend to uh, this this piece of history, um, as it were, in these different lands. At the same time, in the second verse, 22, the fact that they leave over these locations in in modern Gaza, um, or in Aza, in that area, um, it would seem to um, to foreshadow what is to be going into the future. That ultimately becomes the area of the Plishtim, and it's a literally a thorn in the side of the Jewish people for many, many centuries, not just years, many, many centuries, and never rarely gets uh, fully conquered, perhaps until the days of David HaMelech. But until that time, for many hundreds of years, it's a thorn in the sides where the police team settle, and the Jews never really get control of that area uh, at any point. So it's an interesting uh, detail that's subtle, uh, but it appears in the text and is worthy of note. Verse 23, Chav Gimel, which will be the springboard for many prakim to come, V'yikach Yehoshu Eskola Aretz, Yechola Shedibir Adonai El Moshe, Yeshua takes the land. Yeshua then gives it to all the different tribes. The land was quiet from war. Now, if that's the significant, is that the if that's the actual order? That's an open question. I'm not sure that necessarily the land becomes quiet after uh, Yeshua takes the land and gives it out to the different tribes. Perhaps he uh, he wars and he takes the land and thus it's quiet and then he can give it out. At the same time, as Yeshua is set to uh, give out the land in the coming chapters, one has to realize that Yeshua does not in fact capture the entirety of the land. Not every detail, not every city um, is captured by the Jewish people, but you could say, essentially, based on the text here, that the land was quiet for more, that anybody that was left, um, that was not part of the Jewish people, simply had no aspersion um, to go to war um, and no desire to fight the Jewish people. They essentially had military control of the land to the degree by which now Yoshua is able to split up the land and give it out to the Jewish people. Um, we will then continue 
tomorrow with Parakid Bays with chapter 12.